There are all kinds of milestones in railroading. 1827, the Baltimore and Ohio, the first railroad. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869, the largest steam locomotive. When Amtrak came into being, all kinds of milestones. But today, we are celebrating a very special one. The 1,000th issue of Trains Magazine has rolled off the presses. Come on along, this is Trains Live. Do you like what you hear? Listen, check out this episode in video with a Trains.com Unlimited membership. Click the link in the episode notes and watch it today. Oh, wait a minute, not a member? Try our 30-day free trial of Trains.com, the ultimate online portal for anyone who loves trains of any size from any era. Trains.com, it's your home for the most comprehensive railroading news and curated video series, articles, photos, and so much more, all about trains. It was the eve of World War II, 1940. A.C. Kalmbach already had one magazine that was off the ground and successful, Model Railroader, and he decided to start a magazine devoted to trains. Trains Magazine was born. Now, we're at our thousandth issue. And today we're going to reminisce here on Trains Live about the last thousand issues. And to do that, I'm going to welcome to Trains Live Kevin Keefe, who from uh, October 1992 up to 2000 actually piloted Trains Magazine yeah. as editor. That's right, Bob. Um, yeah, retired from Kalmbach in March 2016 as vice president of editorial and still hangs around and pens a, a few good words about trains. Welcome to Trains Great to be Life. here. Great to be here. So a thousand issues. Yeah, and it's amazing, isn't it? It, it is. I mean, you had a hand in some of this. Yeah. And what, I mean, thousand issues. What does it mean to you as a former editor? Reflect on that, that this milestone. Well, it's really kind of sneaks up on, on me anyway. It snuck up on me because I had no idea. We don't. We usually count our issues in terms of volumes of, across a span of a year, 12 issues. So I always had the month of the issue burned into my head or three months ahead or special issues coming up. And I never really thought about really ever the consecutive number of, of magazines we'd done. So I, I would have had no idea we were near 1,000. <laughs> And then you guys started promoting this relatively <laughs> recently, and I thought, wow, that's really incredible. But it is. When you think about how many magazines that there are around who, who never got to 1,000 uh, or how few have gotten to 1,000, it's pretty amazing. Trains is, is really remarkable from that standpoint. Uh, I'm thinking of magazines like The New Yorker and National Geographic and magazines like that. They're, they probably passed 1,000 a long time ago, but not many, not many. And you, you, you led right somewhere that, that I want to go. Last week, Carl Swanson, current editor of mm -hmm. Trains Magazine. By the way, folks, there have only been eight editors of Trains Magazine over that thousand issues. Um, Carl had mentioned the, the percentage of magazines that hit a thousand issues, and it is single digits. And you had already mentioned a couple, um, The New Yorker, Time Magazine mm -hmm. is in that group, Reader's Digest, National Geographic. This is this is some pretty heady company mm -hmm. when you think about trains and model railroader. Right. Well, it just shows you the depth of the readership's loyalty to the magazine, I suppose. And you could also say it shows you the ability we've had over the years to keep giving the readers what they want. That's a remarkable thing, too, because a lot of magazines lose their way over time. Magazines change their design, change their mission, change their approach. 
And it's not that Trains hasn't changed its approach over the years, but never so dramatically that it lost our core audience. They stick, they've stuck with us all this time. It's amazing. To stay, say that Trains changed, I, I think, is, is kind of an understatement. I think yeah. more it's a, the magazine has evolved. Yeah, that's a better word. When you yeah. look at it. Um, in the course of Trains history and trivia, interesting things that we've discovered leading up to the thousandth issue, uh, there have been 13 different Trains logos that have appeared on the it's cover crazy. over time. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and in fact, on the very first issue, there was not a train on the cover. Amazing. I think that's a, that's a significant thing because I think it said something about where Al Kambach was coming from, as well as Lynn Westcott, who was one of his editors on that very first issue. But yeah, what a what a bold thing to do is to start a magazine about trains, and it's like having an aviation magazine, and your first issue has a cloud or something like that. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, you look back in the magazines, and there was a time where there actually was some commentary about. Um, Al Kalmbach and featuring photographs that did not include trains. Okay. And and this is, I guess, kind of want to draw in one other thing about you as, as editor and now in your retirement life, you're very involved in the Center for Railroad um, Art and Photography. Art, art. Art. Right. And there's a lot of great photos that don't have trains in. It, it, absolutely. And, you know, here a magazine about trains is getting away with publishing these yeah. and it's working beautifully. Well, I think it says something about railroading, too, that railroading is a much deeper, broader sort of enterprise than just simply the train going down the track. It's cultural. It's economic, obviously. It involves different kinds of people doing different kind of jobs. Certainly, there's a lot of romance attached to it. And a lot of that romance isn't necessarily involving a train going by. It's as simple as somebody hearing a train in the distance, that kind of thing. So I think Al Kambach in 1940 wanted to kind of capture that feeling as much as he could with the magazine without ignoring his responsibility to get into some of the technical details as well. That's one thing that's really wonderful about trains. It still does this. It's a, it's a great blend of the technical and the economic as well as the stuff that turns on all of us as railroad enthusiasts. I think that's interesting, a very interesting point you bring up because, yes, rail enthusiasts, but yet... We've all talked to railroaders who are, are, you know, I read trains, but maybe right. I should be reading one of the other publications, more more the industry publications, but yet I still read trains because there's material in there at an industry level that is of value to me. Sure. I think, uh, I don't know if it's still true that professional railroaders hide their issues of trains magazine. I think it used <laughs> to be the case. Maybe less so now, but still. No, the, the, the dirty little secret always was, uh, for those in the railroad industry who would scoff at our magazine, that a good 20% of their survey showed a good 20% of our readers involved people that were professionals, either in the management end or professionals, meaning also train and engine crew people and that sort of stuff. So we always had a, you know, we always had a big draw among professional railroaders as well as just the average fan. And uh, that's another thing that made you, trains unique. It, it was a kind of a hybrid between a trade magazine and an enthusiast magazine. But I think you, you look at some of the uh, my own word stories that have have been published over the years, True, yeah. and it, it's professional railroaders contributing what happened to them. Sure. 
on the job and to be able to trust a publication over a thousand issues to tell those stories. Yeah. That's, that's something special. Well, yes. Uh, I don't know what percentage you could probably do it if you were crazy, but some a significant <laughs> percentage of our articles over the years were written by people in the industry. Sure. Uh, and out of passion, really. I mean, they, we've always paid for what people write, but you know, you're not going to get rich on the checks that you get for Trains Magazine. It's really done out of passion and a sense of commitment to the industry and maybe a sense of maybe passing it on to the next generation or whatever. But no, uh, it's, it's, it would be impossible to count how many railroaders, professionals, have contributed to the magazine over the years. It's a, it's a significant percentage. Let's look at a perspective of Trains from you as former editor, as a rail enthusiast, as a journalist. David? So trains over the course of a thousand issues. Uh, this magazine started from there wasn't, and it has become a staple in this particular genre. Well, that what what do you feel? What was the impact, or what is the impact of of trains first on the rail enthusiast? Well, for many many decades, uh, less so now. I have to I have to um, uh, recognize that. But for many many decades, it was the gathering place for fans. It was the one place where all the fans could come together in one place. There wasn't a railroad enthusiast organization that came close to the magazine circulation. Uh, and frank frankly, none of our competing magazines came close to our circulation. So this was the largest kind of campfire around which railroad enthusiasts would gather every month. And, uh, and that was certainly true in 1940 and through the 50s, 60s. It's, not as tr it's more difficult for the magazine to claim that now because there's so much available online sure. for free. Yeah. But, um, but uh, no, I think trains still is kind of the cracker barrel around which we all get together. And, uh, and I think credit to Al Kambach and especially to Dave Morgan, his editor for 33 years, for showing for coming up with the blend you know that would keep people around for a lifetime really a blend of seriousness and fun both at the same time you know you mentioned that that cracker barrel and I, I, today everything you know, internet and social media and forums and reply to a news story and and uh, that uh electronic mm -hmm. version of of a print magazine you know and i, I watch our newswire and I, I think that Cracker Barrel is it, it's still there. Yeah. Because there is there are there's some very faithful readers, uh, very um, I don't want to say aggressive, but um, uh, very active in their right. comments. Very I mean it's like the magazine coming out right. every month. So right. Okay. What what has trains done over the years? And we touched on a little bit the railroad industry, but more so you know when we look at. Uh, the magazine has done features uh, and special issues on locomotives, um, have faithfully followed the passenger train. Um, in fact, probably one of the uh, the more noteworthy uh, stories in trains, uh, I believe it was 1959, who shot the passenger train. Um, you know, today, uh, incredible coverage of Amtrak and even tourist lines. What has been the, the impact on uh, an influence on the industry itself? Well, I think among that 20% of people who read the magazine or read the magazine who are in the industry, a lot of them were some of the most influential people in the industry. I, I won't name names because <laughs> I don't know all the names, but I know enough of them. Some of the most accomplished people mm -hmm. 
in the railroad industry, whether they were in the executive suites of railroad companies or in middle management somewhere, or certainly in some of the positions in Washington, D.C. involving the FRA or in the formative days of Amtrak, that sort of thing. These people were trains readers. I know they were trains readers because I knew, I knew who a lot of them were, and I knew that they either contributed to the magazine or read it. And I think a lot of what was in the magazine had some influence because this is the place where ideas were presented, ideas percolated, ideas, ideas fermented, and then, of course, a lot of it was just simply news reporting. But it was a place where people could go to see, to really get a, a, their, their finger on what's going on really. Uh, more so, I think, than they would get from a trade magazine, which is all due respect to railway age and progressive railroading. But so much of what they're dealing with is stuff that is issued to them by the companies in the way that the companies want them to, themselves to be perceived. And that was never a priority with us at all. And uh, so I think that uh, the credibility of that name, Trains Magazine, is something that carried a lot of weight, especially with some people in the industry who were really very influential. You know, a lot of folks, and I think both as enthusiasts and uh, even journalists, look at Trains Magazine and it's, you know, working, being on the staff of Trains is a plum job, though no choice being the editor. Best job I ever had. <laughs> it really was. And, but, you know, when you look at the the requirements, when, when, a, when a request for, for job application goes out to fill a position, um, you know, Kalmbach is looking for uh, some of the journalism background, you know, three to five years of experience. And, you know, I, I don't think that a lot of folks realize um, this is journalism. Mm -hmm. And what has what has trains done uh, in the world of journalism? I mean, the pure reporting, editing, publishing sets. Well, it's certainly provided a forum from some really great, great journalists. Some of our best writing, no question about it, comes from amateurs or from railroad guys who are railroad people who are not necessarily writers. But we have also been a place, a home for a lot of bylines of, of really great journalists who who really do their homework and, and do work for us as professionally as they would for the news, newspaper they work for or what or the magazine they work for. And that that was one of the great things for me as editor in the years that I was editor, the, the, the privilege of working with some fantastic professional journalists who just happen to be railroad fans. You can't remove that fan aspect of it because they wouldn't do this if, if they didn't have a connection to the subject like an enthusiast has. But they were also professionals. And, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of great journalism in our magazine over the years. I think of all the years and years and years of columns by Don Phillips and later sure. by Fred Fraley, mm -hmm. which really kind of told it like it was yes. uh, in the industry and sometimes in ways that people in the industry didn't <laughs> want to hear. And then you mentioned that April 1959 issue, Who Shot the Passenger Train? That was a great piece of journalism because all across America, in the, in the toward the end of the 1950s, people were kind of asking, well, what happened to the passenger train? It's disappearing before our very eyes. And many people lamented that, although they weren't necessarily riding on the trains. Well, there were some very concrete reasons for it. And finally, Morgan took the bold step of, you know, devoting an entire issue to trying to answer that question, who shot the passenger train? And of course, as he concluded, there were a lot of assassins. It wasn't just one any one thing. But after, you know, talk about making a difference. I think that issue made a huge difference to the readers, especially to the rank and file readers, but also to a lot of people that a few years later would be involved in the creation of Amtrak mm -hmm. 
and the United States Railroad uh, Association and Conrail. So, you know, and, and you mentioned some, I mean, some of the names and, uh, you know, I, I think as folks know that watch trains live, I've been on staff for man, going on about two years mm-hmm. and you walk into this, this building and, you know, you, you meet a, a Bob Johnson, you meet a, a, a Kevin Keith, yeah. um, you know, you, you meet, uh, well, Jim Wren, yeah. um, you know, you meet people of this nature and you go, wow, you know, these are the people I've been reading. Mm-hmm. These are the people that happened to me. Yeah. 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 I run to the mailbox every month to get to see what what are these people going to do this month? Yep. Um, and then you realize, you know, they're real life people, and they love trains. They have a they have a passion for them, yeah. and that passion has fortunately been expressed in the pages over a thousand issues. I went through that same experience in August of 1974 when I I worked here twice, as you might know. I worked here in 74 for two years in sales, writing ad copy, and then I didn't want to do that for a living, so I left. <laughs> But I did come back four years later in 1980, uh, well, m- more than four years later, 1987, I came back. But anyway, my very first day in 74, I remember coming in the lobby downtown at 1027 North 7th Street. And the first person I encountered was Gil Reed, who, oh, you know, was yep. a, a very famous in our little world, but yep. still very big in our little world as, yes. as a, such a wonderful railroad artist. Yes. And of course, he was more than a railroad artist. He was the assistant art director of the magazine, and he was a, a mainstay in the company's art department. And I walked up the stairs to the uh, little elevator that we used to get up to the fifth floor. And on the way, Gil introduced himself. And I told him how nervous I was on my first day because I was going to be running into Dave Morgan and Dave Ingalls and Gil Reed and George Gloff and George Drury and Mike Schaefer and all these people that were in this building at that time. And I remember Gil just sort of scoffed at me and laughed and said, hey, something to the along the lines of we all have to put our pants on one day at a time or something. <laughs> he, he would hear none of it because, and he was right, we're just people here to do a job. Yeah. But man, I was 23 years old and starstruck. Yeah, yeah. I get that feeling. <laughs> I, you know, and you, and you mentioned Gil Reed, and I, I had the, the, the privilege of working with Gil for a, a number of years, not here at Kalmbach, but at the National Railroad Museum. Yeah. And and Gil, he what he was that same way. I mean, here was this this larger than life artist who had done everything for trains from simple little drawings, you know, from World War Two on up to, you know, full color covers and book jackets. Um, and he, you'd walk into his studio and what's on the you know what's on the easel today, exactly. and wow. And here's just this 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 down to earth guy. Incredibly you know, down. You know, talk about the trains and and give you all the details. And yeah, it's it, to have that embodied in one magazine. Wow. Well, Gil was typical of uh, the employees here. He was a little more gregarious than some of the other ones, but he <laughs> he just loved railroading and he had this gift as an artist. But his artistry was a way. In some ways, he was there simply to express how much he loved yeah. trains and the people that came with it. Yes. Absolutely. So your time as editor, uh, obviously, I mean, great news uh, happened, you know, all the time coming the railroad world. But you, you put a twist on as as editor and and did some very creative and very innovative things. And there's one issue I, I want to I want you to kind of kind of walk us through. And I picked this one not only because of the width and the breadth of of what was done and how innovative it was. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna also you know admit okay this this was a soft spot issue for me I really like the Union Pacific and, yep. and I tucked this I know what we get Skycam to dial in here we get the the cover from November 1995 uh-huh. 
and um, Super Railroad. And in this issue, coverage, the stories revolve. It's not just one story. It's multiple Several stories. The entire issue. Yeah. Yep. Revolved all around following one Union Pacific train. Yeah. And what happens to it and everything that goes into making that train go. Yep. Okay. So first off. What, what back room, how, what, how thick was the coffee? How strong was it to think up the, yeah, <laughs> the well, heck of a coffee? In my case, how, how strong was the iced tea? <laughs> I, I, um, I don't drink coffee. But, uh, well, I, I tell you where the idea come from. It, it came from what often happens in journalism. The best ideas are the ones that you steal uh, or at least adapt. And in my, in my case, and it says so in the, in the first, mm -hmm. uh, one of the first pages of that issue, we were thinking about the upcoming night, uh, 55th anniversary issue. What could we do that's special? Because as the readers know, every five years we try to make a big deal out mm -hmm. of whatever the anniversary is. And we'd had a huge issue in 1990 for the 50th. So we wanted to do something cool but different um, for 95. And I had recently read a book by a wonderful writer named Daniel Okrent. O-K-E-R-E-N-T, -E Okrent. And he's written a lot of books and he's a prominent journalist. But he'd written a book in the early 80s called Nine Innings. And it was a book about the entirety of baseball at that moment in history, but told through the prism of one game on one day. Oh, wow. Here is the whole thing. And used that to explore all the issues that were facing baseball at that moment. And I thought, well, what a cool way to do that. Could you do that with railroading? And the only way that we could think to do it, and, and my collaborators mainly on this were Rob McGonigal, um, our associate editor at the time, and then my, my former boss and partner, Dave Ingalls. We put our heads together and thought, well, if we can find a train that's going to be doing its job from morning to afternoon in one day over one very specific piece of territory, and if we can get the permission of the railroad to do it, <laughs> sure. we might be able to pull this off. And make a long story short, that led us to Union Pacific, and we settled on this one rather mediocre merchandise train that ran every day from Council Bluffs west out to North Platte. And we followed it for a day from just about any angle you could think of and turned it into a series of stories that told about not just what it took to get that train over the road that day, but what it took to get the whole American railroad industry over the road, if you will. <laughs> and so, and it worked out well. We, uh, but it, it, was, it was a big commitment of resources even for a small magazine like ours. I remember going into my boss, the publisher at the time, Russ Larson, and telling him about the idea and what I thought we needed, because what we needed to do was send a fairly large group to Nebraska for that day to chase the whole thing, to chase the train, ride the train, cover the train. 14 people, 14 guys. And it was going to require an investment of about $14,000 in travel expenses, which was a lot of money to the magazine then and probably still is now. Well, Russ signed off on it because I think he sensed the magic, if you will, of the idea. So the company sucked it up and spent the money, and we went out there for a day and had a wonderful time. It was tough going in the first half of the day because there was a lot of rain, but then it cleared up, and we got what we wanted. And we got a collection of stories and photographs and diagrams that I think, in that moment anyway, kind of said what railroading was all about, uh, all on the, in the process of just following this one train on the one day. So... Yeah, it was a thrill. <laughs> you pitched the story and then gave him the price tag? <laughs> uh, well, we didn't know what the price tag was exactly until we did it, but I figured it was going to be about $1,000 per person. Because we had to fly, fly these guys in from sure. all over the country. Yeah. They weren't. There was only three or four of us from the office that went out there. Mm -hmm. 
It was great. It was great. We even we even had a helicopter reserved. There were no drones then um, to do some aerial stuff, but unfortunately, we had scheduled the helicopter out of Fremont, Nebraska, in the morning, and that's when the weather was bad, and the guy wouldn't fly, so we didn't get the aerials. But we got everything else. Neat. It was great. You, you know, Gavin, you, you touched on one interesting thing in, in your comments there, the the idea that in this one exercise, you painted a picture of railroading of the day, and it was a a resource of here's what it is we have recorded this and put it put it in stone here's what we saw this yep. is this is fact and i think that's one thing over a thousand issues trains is a resource you know i think of uh, you know i think of students writing papers in in school um i i think of people like myself um doing research uh trains magazine is that authoritative resource and you know I, I don't think that's blowing our own horn in any way i think that's the effort yeah. that has gone into this i agree with that i agree with that in the years i was editor one of my guiding principles if, if i had to write it down would have been you know what do the readers need to know we know what they want to know and we want to give them that but what's the stuff they need to know too and good journalism provides people what they need to know even if they don't always know it and i always felt that the most the, the railroad enthusiast that would get the most out of railroading and the most out of his avocation would be the one who understood the business the most as well as just the fun of watching a train go by. Sure. So, you know, the key to enjoying it is partly in understanding it. And so that was partly what our mission was. All right, all these trains are going by, all this stuff's going on. What does it all mean? Yeah. And and that was certainly what this issue was out to do was to kind of say what it all meant, at least in that moment. Sure. As editor, you must have some incredible tales uh, from. Well, most, most, they got one you can share with us. <laughs> well, one of my favorite stories is what it took for me later on as publisher to find uh, one of our most successful editors, and that was Jim Wren, who um, hired you, right? That's yes. And the late Jim Wren, who we miss very much. Uh, Jim was editor for oh gosh, seventeen years. Seventeen years. I knew it was quite a bit. <laughs> I had tried to hire Jim twice before that, or at least if not hire him, get him to put his hat in the ring. Once in the, or in the mid-1990s when we had an, uh, an opening for a slot on the magazine, and he was really tempted to do it. He was a reporter at the Charlotte Observer, but he didn't want to leave North Carolina because his, grand, his mother was his only surviving parent, and he felt very close to her, and he felt like he would have been abandoning her if we moved up to the Midwest. So he very regretfully turned me down. So then a few years later, we had another opening. And again, I approached Jim about being one of the names in the hat. You know, I wasn't guaranteeing him to get the job, but I certainly was highly interested in him. And again, he says, man, this is the chop of a lifetime. It's chop, but I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't leave my mom behind it. I, I totally got that. Of course, of course, I respected him for it. It's a wonderful reason not to do something. So then in 19, or in 2004, uh, when we needed another editor, a new editor-in-chief, we looked at a couple of various candidates, and one of them I didn't consider was Wren because he had already turned me down twice. Sure. And I thought, unfortunately, we're just never going to get this guy. Well, I did not know that his mother, God bless her, had passed on, okay. and he was very much <laughs> But he was afraid to approach me. Oh, because sure. he was kind of sheepish about having turned me down <laughs> twice, which he didn't need to be sheepish, mm -hmm. but he was. 
Sure. So a recruiter in Boston, uh, I, I called him one day to see if he'd gotten any new names for us. And he says, well, I got this one guy, Jim Rin in North Carolina. And I just flipped out. He said, are you kidding me? He's interested. <laughs> so uh, we got to Jim through the recruiter uh, because yeah. I wasn't thinking of him and he was kind of afraid to approach me. But we got together in the end and we hired him. Third time was a charm. Yeah, third time was, was a charm. It worked was, out great. He had a really good run. Yes, yeah. And, you know, I look at a lot of Jim's work, and he very much built on some of the things that, that you had oh, done. Oh, definitely. And yeah. really that foundation, you know, going back to issue number one. Yeah, I think I think the roots were still being honored, but he certainly did a lot of things his own writing. Each editor has. Yeah, yeah. definitely. All right. Mr. Bob's Railroad Bookshelf for today. Listen, folks. No books on the shelf, just a magazine. Issue number 1,000 of Trains Magazine. You got to get a subscription and get your own copy. Okay, don't, don't borrow a buddy's copy and they, because then you don't get to keep it for yourself. All right? Um, you know, local libraries are going to have it uh, 50 years from now. Railroad museums, archives are going to hang on to these things. Also, you know, if you don't want to invest and take up the shelf space in the printed copy, Trains.com. There is an archives there that has every single issue. So I use it all the time. Yeah. It's fabulous. Okay. Um, I also know. have a amount of volumes of almost every issue, but those things are a pain in the neck. They're heavy. Yeah. I yeah, love they, the online they, they, archives. I mean, they weigh it's it's fantastic. Trains.com gets you access to every issue of Trains Magazine, including a thousand. And listen, also got to mention HombachHobbyStore.com. Check out all the good things we have there, hobby supplies, the latest puzzles, combat books. And you know what? Folks, uh, us here at Trains, we have a new SIP out, uh, Steam Across America, uh, looking at contemporary steam locomotives. And, and there's a lot of them floating around these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big Boy will be running again in 2024. And the 1225. 1225. In Michigan. Yep. Okay. So pick this one up uh, either on the newsstand or get it through Kalmbach Hobby Store. Dot com. Kevin, pleasure speaking with you That's today. That's been great, man. Yes. Appreciate and, it. Uh, I mean, great insights. And I, I, you always, I love when people like you can share that past. And as you said, in so many cases, put it in perspective for us. Well, good. I hope I did that. It's fun. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Good. Thanks, Thank Bob. Make sure you pick up issue 1000 of Trains. And listen, until you we meet here again on Trains Live, I really, really do want to see you behind the pages of Trains Magazine. Do you like what you hear? Listen, check out this episode in video with a Trains.com Unlimited membership. Click the link in the episode notes and watch it today. Oh, wait a minute. Not a member? Try our 30-day free trial of Trains.com, the ultimate online portal for anyone who loves trains of any size from any era. Trains.com, it's your home for the most comprehensive routing news and curated video series, articles, photos, and so much more, all about trains.